Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Dinsky continues our series called Follower, where we'll be navigating what it means to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. Matt talks about the conditional follower and reminds us that Jesus doesn't fit into the box we want him to or follow our conditions. We look at John 12, verses 12 through 15, and then John 19, verses 14 through 16, comparing how the same crowd shouting Hosanna is also shouting to crucify him later when Jesus didn't fit into their box and how we can do the same. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Grab a seat, everyone, and welcome. Welcome, everyone, to Fellowship Greenville students. We are so glad you're here on this Sunday night. The weather is warm. The days are long. It is bright outside right now. Spring is in blossom and bloom. I mean, it's, it's, it's great, man. Anyone else excited about this time of year? Thank you, thank you. Seven of you are pumped and I'm pumped with you. Spring is my second favorite season in the year. So I'm, I'm the second most happy you'll see me this year. Uh, I'd like to welcome you guys. If it's your first time here or first time in a while, welcome. Uh, My name is Matt Densky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville. And I just want you to know that you are loved, so loved by us and by God, and that you have a place to belong. We believe that you have a place to belong here and in the family of God. And we want to welcome you tonight. Thanks for joining us to worship, to learn from God about what He has to teach us tonight through His Word and through His Spirit, through His presence. Uh, I'm excited about tonight. I got a question for you guys. Um, Is anyone in the room like a a show person? Anyone like, where's my show people at? You like watching shows, series, on TV, streaming, whatever else? Thank you. Yes. If your hand's not up, I'm I'm questioning that. We like shows, man. Uh, What what kind of shows? What do you guys... What? Phineas and Ferb. Phineas. Phineas and Ferb. I can honestly say I've never watched a single episode of that. Don't know what that is. Uh, <laughs> Man, come on now. I got my cowboy hat. All right, bud. Uh, what else? What shows? What shows? The Office? Yes, The Office. Any Office fans in the house? Yes. This side of the room. No one over here likes The Office. Interesting. What else? What other shows? Friends? Friends? Really? Wow, man, that's surprising, really. SpongeBob, Curious George. All right, interesting. Does anyone like any good shows? Does anyone like any Outer Banks? John B. is so hot. Gilmore Girls, I tried. Friends, it's already, yeah, they said. (laughs) Rachel, friends, yes. Uh, Gilmore Girls, I tried that one. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it, man. I couldn't do it. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys, uh, back in the day, uh, I'm talking early, early 2000s, so in the beginning of our millennia, uh, I was in college and um, there was this show that had come out on TV, it had been out for like a season, and one of the guys on my hall had a DVD box set, yes, I don't know if you know what that is. It's where they take a whole show and put it on DVDs and you go purchase an entire season. You don't have to stream it. There was no such thing as streaming yet. Um, he, had, he had a DVD box set of this show called Lost. Yeah. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And we didn't know what it was. We had never seen it. But I'm here to tell you today that to this day, 2021, Lost remains, I think, one of the greatest shows ever made. They were pioneering like a lot of the ways that your shows are done now, <laughs> your shows, <laughs> your kids, you generation, a lot of the ways that the shows you guys are into are done. I mean, they had all these, you know, the, the way they did story development and character development and plot twists and all that. I mean, Lost was pioneering some things. We had never heard about it. And so this guy was like, hey, anyone want to watch this show? So we, we started watching and man, we got like hooked. I mean, we were sucked in. Uh, we, we were binging before binging was a thing. And so, like, every time it was time to, to watch Lost, the dude would come out of his room and, and yell down the hall, Lost! And we would just swarm and, and cram in there. And the show was named appropriately because it was about a, a group of survivors who crashed in a plane on this island, this tropical island, so they were literally lost. But it was also appropriate because this show was so multi-layered 
with so many mysteries and so many twists and turns and, and plot changes and, and, you know, like surprises with the characters that most viewers remained lost the entire time. And so it was actually a great tactic. You would just keep watching to hopefully get some clarity and you, and you never did, but you're like, okay, next week. And so we watched through season one on the DVDs and like, you know, I don't know, one day. And then, and then it was like, oh man, what are we going to do now? And so once we caught up to where the show was at on, on television, on aired television, uh, we then had to wait week to week to watch it, which you guys know what that's like. If, if, if you're into a show and it leaves you on a cliffhanger, you're like, oh my gosh, seven days so I can find the answer to this. And sometimes they wouldn't even give you the answer. They would just kind of go somewhere else and then take care of that way later in the season. And so we, we were into this thing for years. Lost went on for six seasons. Any, anyone ever see Lost? Anyone? I know it's kind of an older show. Some of you guys, pretty much all the adult volunteers. Power to you, okay? Any, any students ever watch Lost? Yes. Congratulations, sir. Congratulations. <laughs> One of you. It's great, right? It's a great show. So, so basically what, what happened though is we invested years into this thing and, and we were so uh, excited about the final season. They, they announced this will be our final season. We're not going to do it anymore after this. We were like, oh, finally, in the final season, all of our questions will be answered. Every question that we have that's been developing, developing for years will finally come to resolution. We will know what this means and what that means. And, and so throughout the whole season, it's like you're waiting and waiting and waiting. It's like, it's not coming. In fact, even more questions got raised and you're like, wait, 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 what, what's, what's going on with this? And then finally, the, not the season finale, I'm talking the series finale, like the last episode of the whole thing aired. And I remember being crammed in this room, watching it with all these people. I mean, this was a cultural event. Lost was more than like a group of, it was a cultural, everybody was tuning in to Lost back in the day. And everyone was watching this thing. And I remember as the episode unfolded, the vibe in the room was one of such dissatisfaction. Can I get an amen from my Lost fans? Like everyone watching was like, what is happening right now? This gives us nothing. This is the most bizarre ending they could have chosen. Like I get what they're doing, but it doesn't wrap up anything. Like Lost was so beautiful because you were so curious all the time and everyone was waiting. Wait, wait, wait. What, like what does the black smoke mean? And where did Jacob come from? And how does the island move? And where's that submarine from? And how do they time travel back to the 70s? You guys are like, spoilers, man. You're not watching it. Don't lie. I don't want to know. All these questions that are irrelevant to you guys because you're like, I, dude, we don't know what you're talking. I get it. I get it. I'm telling you the whole country was wondering these things. Everybody. And the season finale, series finale left you so disappointed. It left you hanging. And it put such a sour taste in my mouth. I mean, I, I went from like, I love this show, to kind of like, eh, it's a good show. But you can skip the whole, the whole like <laughs> series finale, season finale. You can skip that. Kind of like Seinfeld for my old school Seinfeld fans. Yes, Schlarb. All right. The last, last episode was like, eh, and it kind of leaves a sour taste in your mouth for everything else. In fact, so much so that when I got married, I asked my wife, I was like, hey, I haven't seen this show since college can we rewatch it? I haven't watched it in a few years. I think you'd like it. So we rewatched the whole thing. And then when we got to that final, final episode, I said, you know what? It's really, <laughs> it's not even that important. Like, I'm just going to show you like this 10 minute part here. We're going to skip the rest of it and go to that part. Like we skipped the entire thing. We watched through six seasons and kind of skipped that last, last episode because it left us feeling so, or me feeling so disappointed my first go around. I was like, it's not even worth it this time. And I just kind of filled in the gaps for her. You guys ever been like let down, disappointed, like that doesn't have to be a show. It could be in anything in life. But you kind of have all these ideas in your mind of like, oh, we built it up. It's going to be this. Oh, man, it's so good. We can't wait. We can't wait to see what happens. You build it up. You build it up. You build it up. And then you experience it. And you're like, ah, it wasn't that, it wasn't that good after all. You guys have any experiences like this? Like it could be about a person. Some of you guys might be like mad crushing on someone for months. Like, oh, he's so dreamy. And then you finally start dating and you're like, wow, dude's a loser. Like, I, I, what was I, what did I see? <laughs> you, you know, that? it's like, why didn't no one tell me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Could be a person. It could be an experience. I, I will confess to you guys, I'm, I'm like not a concert person. I know tons of people are like, concerts! 
And I'm just not, and I remember, I went to one when I was young. It was a Brooks and Dunn concert for my, for my country fans in the house. Yeah, <laughs> that's the reason. Uh, I went with my mom and, and, uh, and I was jamming so hard, I, I, was, I was in it, and I hit my head on the back of the chair, and all my mom, all my, my mom says all she felt was just warm spray on her. My head popped open. I was rocking to Brooks and Dunn, man. I cracked my head wide open. My, my mom got covered in, <laughs> in my blood. I had to go to like, where's the dog? Like, we're walking through the stadium. So I was a little scarred. So in college, I was like, all right, I'll give concerts another try. And I went to a few, and I've just always been like, eh. Like, they've just... They've never, I don't know, quite measured up. I went to a John Mayer concert. I'm so sorry, Nathan. I'm so sorry, dude. And I was like, eh, it's, it's all right. Like, I see. I went to a Taylor Swift concert. Sorry, Rachel. And it was like, ah, it's okay. Rascal Flass. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't have to be a person. It could be an experience or something like that. Or I don't know, if you guys have ever gone to a restaurant and it was like, oh, the food is so good. And you kind of build up in your mind what it's going to be. That happened with me with clams or oysters. I don't know what I ate. I don't, I don't really, they, they were shells. And I went out to dinner with someone, they're like, oh, dude, you got to get oysters. Oysters are so good. And I'm like, all right, man. And he's like, I'll buy them. I'll buy, dude. I'll buy. And this was like a nice Italian restaurant. L'Italia mi piace molto oysters. And they came and I was like, all right, bro, I'm with you. And I, I put it in my mouth and it immediately flew out of my, I couldn't, I couldn't. Like we do this, we do this in life. Where we have these things or these ideas of, of people or experiences or, or places that kind of get built up and others talk about it and you hear it and you're like, wow, yeah, I want to try that. Ooh, I want to go there. Ooh, I want to get to know them. You keep building up, building up, building up, and then you form all your own ideas and conditions about what it's going to be when you finally experience it. And then oftentimes you just end up feeling let down, Right? Because you built it up to this place that nothing can actually be. It's like these, all these ideas we were dreaming on and all these presuppositions we had, no one can, can match that. And you end up feeling really disappointed. Do we ever do that with Jesus? In your faith, do you ever have these ideas about Jesus that you've heard from people or experiences that you've heard and you're like, oh, I want that. I want to experience that. Yeah, man, I want to be up at 3 a.m. in my bedroom and all of a sudden a tongue on fire descends on me and I start speaking in tongues. Like, I want that, man. Yeah. And then you stay up till 3 a.m. one night and you fall asleep and you're like, that. I don't get it. Like, well, how did you do that? <laughs> Gotta have the gift, bro. You ever do this with Jesus? where you have this idea of what he's going to do in your life or who he's going to be or, or what it's going to be like to believe in him, and then you kind of end up disappointed. Is it because you had all these presuppositions and assumptions and conditions based on him? Like you allowed this idea to inflate to this unrealistic version of who he is, and then you began to contribute to it and define what it would be like, and then when it didn't quite work out that way, it just left such a sour taste in your mouth. And then you were kind of turned off to Jesus. It happens. Tonight we're going to continue our follower series on Palm Sunday, which is today. I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. But we're going to continue our follower series, which we've been in for the past few weeks. And we've been looking at different uh, examples of followers in the Gospels. And kind of looking at, hey, this category of followership is actually not following Jesus. And, and week one, we looked at the consumer follower, those who follow Jesus for the benefits of it. Then we looked at the curious follower. I, I'm curious, but I'll never actually be committed because I, I always need more certainty and, and I just never feel like it's enough. And then last week, we looked at the 99% follower, someone who's almost all in, but just can't quite give it all. Tonight, we're going to look at the conditional follower. Someone who follows Jesus, but it's like as long as he meets my conditions. Kind of these ideas that we set forth, these parameters that we put in place, these assumptions and presuppositions we make, and as long as Jesus adheres to those and kind of fits in that viewpoint, then I'll follow him. And we're going to look at that tonight. I want you to turn to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. Uh, this is Palm Sunday today. Palm Sunday is named after the passage that we're going to study tonight. In the text, a little bit of context of what's going on. 
John divides his book in the Scriptures up into two halves. The first 12 chapters of John's Gospel are essentially the first 33 years of Jesus' life, uh, particularly the three years of his public ministry that he began at the age of 30. And then the last half of his book, his gospel, is, is roughly the last three days of Jesus' time and life on this earth. And so he kind of has this split. It's like, here's three years, here's three days, and chapter 12 is the final chapter in the three-year overview. And so Jesus is rapidly approaching his death, his crucifixion in this passage, but he's also really, really well known. He's been doing ministry now for three years, and all the miracles, and all the, the mighty acts, and works of God, and words of God, and Jesus has done them all. And so he has quite a reputation at this point. And most recently, he has just raised someone from the dead. That's pretty fresh in his repertoire of miracles. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but if you had or at least heard about it, I would imagine your curiosity about this God-man who can bring someone back from the tomb is, is pretty fascinating. And you might go out to see him. And that's kind of what's happening here. John chapter 12 uh, it is right now beginning what's called Passover in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and Passover is this week-long festival where Jewish people from all over Israel would come and celebrate the Passover, which is found all the way in the book of Exodus, where God's people were liberated from slavery under the evil king Pharaoh. And so early church historians mark that Jerusalem during Passover would swell in its population up, up to two million people. That would not be uncommon. We're talking like Bible times, Jerusalem is packed with two million people. That's an enormous amount of people in ancient Jerusalem, and they're traveling all from all over Israel to be there. So there's massive crowds. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for Passover in the final week of his life, and that's where we're going to pick up the story today. John chapter 12 Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd, so out of Jerusalem, potentially two million people, a chunk of that two million people is here expecting Jesus. And so probably not, I mean, you can't fit two million people on a road. Like Jesus was not coming into Jerusalem from everywhere. He was coming in from one road. And so probably tens of thousands of people are lining this road, less than two million, admittedly but still a massive amount of people. In fact, the most people gathered in a single place to, to, to come and see Jesus ever. Like he's had crowds of thousands before, but probably tens of thousands of people are lining this one road into Jerusalem awaiting Jesus. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, Passover, uh, had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees, that's where we get the name Palm Sunday. This would have been on a Sunday. They took the branches of palm trees and went out to him to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And then we have a quotation here uh, out of the Old Testament book, Zechariah, which says, fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So this prophecy was made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago about what the Messiah, the chosen one, the one of God, would enter Jerusalem like, that he would be riding a donkey. And here's Jesus sitting on a donkey. All right, so let's, let's unpack this a little bit, because there's some strange stuff going on. It's like, dude, why, why a donkey? Like, that's kind of bizarre, right? Like, of all the animals he could ride. I'm not sure a donkey would be at the top of the list. That's a little bizarre. What's the deal with the palm branches? Why are they so excited? What are they getting, you know, hyped about here? What's going on? So let's unpack it. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate the feast, and this crowd wants to see Jesus. Again, he's been doing ministry now for about three years. His reputation is known all throughout Israel because, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was a homeless dude who traveled around the nation doing ministry and relying on the generosity of others to supplement the needs monetarily of that ministry. He had a little bit of a home base. His disciples had some connections, but he relied on the network of people and their generosity. 
He was homeless. He traveled around. He's been traveling Israel for three years doing ministry, and people know who Jesus is. Oh, this is the dude who spoke to the weather? I want to see this. Oh, this is the guy who raised that little girl back from the dead? I want to see this. Oh, this is the dude who, who manifested food from nothing and fed those thousands of people? He's coming. Oh, let's go out to see him. Like all of those people who have heard these rumors of Jesus but have never been able to actually see him or catch him are now going to have the opportunity. They're in Jerusalem for Passover, millions. And they hear that Jesus is coming. And they want to go out to meet him, to see the miracle man, to see the God man. As probably would you. I want to see what he does. I want to see if anything happens. I want to see if he does a miracle. I want to see what's going to happen. Like, there's some hype. There's some buzz around Jesus. And so probably around tens of thousands of people go out of Jerusalem and line this road that Jesus is coming in on. And so they took branches of palm trees. Now, this is odd. Why? This is weird. Like, if you heard, (laughs) if you heard... I don't know, like let's say someone famous is strolling through your suburb. I don't know. Like let's say you're on social media and you, you're like watching Justin Bieber's live, Instagram live, and you look in the background of his Insta and you're like, wait a minute, I know that house. Wait, I know that car. That's my neighborhood. Yo, that's my ne-. And Like you run out. I want to see the Biebs. Where's he at? I dare say your first thought would probably not be, I got to find a palm tree, (laughs) strip the branches, Justin, right? Like, oh, Jesus is coming, where the palm tree's at? Like, this is a little, like, what's, why? What's going on? And if you're talking tens of thousands of people on a scavenger hunt for palm branches, I mean, this is why palm, branches, palm trees just went extinct in Jerusalem overnight. Like every single one of them, just a nub of a stump. Like we had to get the palm branches, man. Why? Just a mad frenzy of people climbing trees. Here's a branch. So the palm branches, it's actually a symbol. It's a, it's a, it's a Hebrew symbol. When kings or warriors, heroes, would go off to battle, And they would defeat their enemy. And then they would come back into the city that they were ruling or that they resided in. The people of that city would oftentimes gather palm branches and lay them on the road of travel. Lay them at the feet of the hero or the king returning to his city. And it was a sign, it was a marking that the the warrior or the king is returning victorious from his battle. It's a Hebrew idea. It's this Old Testament practice. And it's so interesting that all of these Jewish people who are in Jerusalem for Passover, who hear about Jesus coming, their first instinct is, let's mark it. Let's mark that moment. Let's lay palm branches down because the warrior, the king, is returning from a victorious battle. Well, is he, though? Like, is he coming back from some battle? No. Did he just fight someone? No. What are they, what are they marking? I mean, it's a really interesting moment. Thousands of people, where's the palm branches? The king's coming back. Potentially, it could be that he just defeated death and the grave through his friend Lazarus by bringing Lazarus back from the death, from, from, from dead. And they're kind of marking this idea that Jesus even conquers death. For sure, he's got to be the long-awaited king. This is him. Maybe it's other miracles that he's done, or, or maybe they're interpreting like his victory within the spiritual realm, as Jesus has had authority over demon-possessed people all throughout his ministry. I mean, just, they're marking something. This is the hero returning from battle. This is our king returning from victory. And yet there was no physical victory to be had, or potentially they're marking what they're hoping for. They're they're declaring a foreshadowing of sorts. They're they're almost like putting the cart 
before the horse, or in this case, before the donkey, but they want Jesus to do something, and they're marking it. So what do they want him to do? And this is what we've got to understand about this passage. When we come to the Word of God, we've got to understand the culture and the timing and, and the, the, the context of what's going around. All throughout the Old Testament, there are prophecy after prophecy after prophecy predicting that one day God's chosen one will come. The anointed one will come and will begin to make all things right. God created us in the beginning in a perfect harmony with Him, and because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, sin spread through the world and through everyone who is born. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's glimpses of God uh, pursuing us and allowing the heavenly realm to, to kind of touch the earthly realm with His presence. But there's all these prophecies, one day, one day, one day, He will come, who won't just allow the realms to, to touch one day he will come who will bring heaven to earth and the overlap will begin to happen. One day one will come who will make everything right again. One day one will come who will bring us back into perfect relationship with God just as we were created to be. One day one will come who will reconcile all things to himself. One day one will come to all these prophecies. And they're very specific. One of them we just read out of Zechariah. He will come riding on a donkey. It's a weird prophecy. <laughs> But it's there. There's all over the place in the Old Testament. And so if you can imagine, you know, growing up in, in this culture and hearing all these prophecies over and over and over, your generation grew up and, and passed, and ah, our generation's not the one where the Messiah would come. And then you hope for your kids, and they grow up, and it passes, and then, ah, it's not our generation. And then their kids grow up, and it passes. For hundreds of years, generation after generation after generation, waiting on this Messiah, well, it's kind of like a game of telephone. You began to read those prophecies and you began to understand them a little bit differently based on how you interpret them and based on what you think and based on your assumptions. And so the Hebrew culture and the Jewish people began to have this thought in their mind. One day, the chosen one of God, the Messiah, will come and will liberate us from our earthly oppressors. Now, at this time, Jerusalem and all of Israel had been conquered by Rome. Caesar had been conquering the, the known world at the time, and they were oppressed by Rome. And they thought when the anointed one comes, he will overthrow the Roman government from this place. He will start a physical overthrowing, a military movement or maybe a political movement. Either way, he will liberate Israel and make us a theocracy again, and he will sit on a physical throne and rule his people. That's what they wanted. Jesus did not come like they thought he would come. They began to understand those prophecies according to the lens of their preference and then began to apply those preconceived conditions to the Messiah. Jesus indeed did come to overthrow our oppressor, but not the earthly oppressor Rome, our spiritual oppressor Satan. Jesus did come to give us liberty and freedom, but not from Rome, from sin and death. Jesus did not come as conquering king, he came as suffering servant, and there was no category in their minds that Messiah would do that. When Messiah comes, he will liberate us. He did, spiritually. When Messiah comes, he will defeat our enemy. He did, spiritually. When Messiah comes, he will sit on the throne. He did, as he was exalted into heaven. But they thought everything was earthly. And I think that when they're laying palm branches down at Jesus' coming, it's like they're telling him, he's not returning from a victorious battle, but he's coming into Jerusalem right now and he's about to wage war on Rome. <laughs> All these conditions that they had formed about Messiah, they're applying to Jesus. And so they went out to meet him and they're crying, Hosanna! In the Hebrew, Hoshana, Hoshana. They're crying this, tens of thousands of people in the street crying this, Hosanna, which means save us. It's this Hebrew word, it means save us or grant us salvation. Again, I don't, I'm not convinced that they're proclaiming this in a spiritual context. I think 
They're saying, save us from Rome. Save our people. Save our nation. The name of Jesus itself means God saves. I mean, this is such an iconic moment. Here's God saves, and the people are saying, save us. And yet they're not talking about their sin. They're talking about their circumstances. Get Rome out of here. Here's the palm branches. Do it, man. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is the first time that the Jewish people in three years of doing ministry had called Jesus king. I mean, this, they are saying, they are declaring, this is Messiah. This is him, the long-awaited one. Generations of waiting for him, all the prophecies in the Old Testament. This has got to be him, and he's going to overthrow Rome. All of our preconceived understandings and conditions and assumptions applied to this man. Here he Rome, you better wait. Save us. This is God saves. Save us. Here's the palm branches for the victorious king. And they're declaring him king of Israel. But again, they're interpreting this through the lens that he's about to start a military or a political movement overthrowing their captives, Rome, an earthly war, not a spiritual one. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written out of Zechariah, fear not, behold, your king is coming, riding a donkey's colt. This was a sign of peace, Jesus on a donkey. Like kings going into battle, they would ride horses, right? Like this one. You would expect Lord of the Rings fans, shadow facts, no one. Okay, cool. Uh, you would expect, thank you. <laughs> you would expect, like victorious king, like you would expect Jesus on this primped and preem horse, beautiful mane, like stark white. Ooh, here's the king of righteousness. Oh, I look at him coming. Like the king going to battle would be riding something like this. But here comes King Jesus, Messiah, our savior and liberator, defeater of death and the grave. And he's mounted up on this. I mean, you, you would be standing there like, yo, I mean, okay, I get the Zechariah thing. It's a little weird to see in person, okay, but this is the king. All right, let's just overlook the donkey. This is the king. Here he comes. Hosanna, save us. Take Rome out. Jesus is mounted up on this dude right here. Like, <laughs> just not the king you would expect because Jesus doesn't fit into our box and he's not bound by our conditions. You may not know this, but Jesus in, in his group of 12 disciples called one of them named Simon and the scriptures say Simon the Zealot. This is different than Simon Peter. The Zealots were a fanatical group in Jesus' day and culture. And their whole thing was to overthrow Rome through violence. The zealots were a group of insurrectionists who would create chaos and confusion and violence in the Roman kingdom. They were modern day, Rome would have viewed them as terrorists. The Jews may be people who are liberating us. Jesus asked Simon the zealot to be in his twelve. But he's not calling him to that life, he's calling him to peace. But you can understand how people awaiting a conquering king would see, ooh, he got Simon a zealot in his 12. Okay, they're plotting, they're scheming, they've got to be overthrowing Rome. Like you can see how all these things would have added up to them interpreting the king according to their conditions rather than according to himself. I mean, it would be like, all right, so anyone ever been to New York? Yeah? Times Square? Okay, <laughs> everyone who's went to New York went to Times Square. Good for you, man. Um, anyone ever been there on New Year's Eve? One, Brian, anyone else? No? Okay, maybe. What was the question? Uh, New Year's Eve on, in Times Square, you guys have seen the videos? It's packed. It's packed. It, like, n there's not one thing about that uh, that appeals to me in any way whatsoever. Like, when I see those videos... People crammed together, and they got their, like, glasses on with the year, and they're looking through the eyes. I mean, I, like, I've heard adults will wear, will wear adult diapers just to be there because, 
I know it's disgusting. I know. Could you imagine being so committed? Like, yo, how are we going to celebrate the new year? Yo, we're going to put on some adult depends and we go into Times Square. I don't care if I mess everything myself. I'm getting there. Like, bro, no. But let's just say you're packed in to Times Square. I don't know how many people are there, but from the cameras and the footage, it looks like tens of thousands. Something similar to this road lining Jerusalem. And you're waiting on the ball to start dropping and you're checking your clock. You're like, oh, is it time? Is it time? And then all of a sudden you catch a rumor that someone exceedingly rich or wealthy or famous is coming. As I heard someone say Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos maybe. I mean, I don't know. It's not, it's not, this is not political, but the man is rich. Donald Trump, maybe you heard. He's coming through Times Square. And you're like, oh, I mean, love him or hate him, there is something about celebrities where you're like, well, even if I hate him, I do want to see him. Like, right? like I'm this close. I might as well <laughs> take a picture. Take the selfie. Jeez, I hate this man. <laughs> like, you know, like, come on now. But let's just say you're in Times Square and the buzz begins to spread and you hear people talking like, oh, someone's coming. Someone's going, who, who, who's coming? Do you'll never believe this man, but for some reason, Donald Trump decided to drive through Times Square tonight. You're like, really? New Year's Eve? Yeah, I know, he's not even president anymore, but he's, this is where he wanted to be. <laughs> really? I know. And so you start to hear like the rumors spread. He's coming, he's coming. It's driving right through, yeah, right through the middle, man, like right here, this is the road. So you kind of look in, you're looking, and then all of a sudden you start to hear the screams of the people and people, you know, jeering or cheering or whatever they're doing, but here he comes. Oh, you're seeing the buzz, and you're seeing people start to spread a little bit, and you know he's coming up on you, and you would expect someone as wealthy or prestigious or as influential to be riding, I don't know, a limousine at the very least, right? Like something high class, something that says, I have money and I really like that money, right? Like something that represents their status. And Donald Trump is rolling down Times Square. The ball's about to drop and you're waiting to see his limousine. And what turns the corner? This car! You're like, is it behind, is it behind the clunker? Like what is this? And DT rolls down the aisle, and you're like, okay, and you're like, you kind of scoot over, and you let, him, you let him through, and he decides to roll down the window, have a little conversation with you. You're like, hey, man. You're like, peace, peace. I could have got a Ferrari. I could have. I could have. I got this for the gas mileage. I did. Like, okay, bro. Like, you do you. And he's, it's, it's just not in the box of, of expectation. Like, Jesus, a donkey? Like, of all the things you could have ridden, a donkey. But Jesus is coming in a sign of peace. I'm not coming to make war, at least not war on Rome. I'm, de- I'm coming to declare war on the snake, Satan. I'm not conquering Rome, I'm conquering death, so I can bring life to my followers. That's the kind of king I am. I'm the king who lays down my life for his people. I'm the king who goes toe-to-toe with the enemy. I'm the king who steps in and puts skin on. I'm the king who raises from the dead again. Like Jesus was not interested in the political expectations the military expectations placed on him. He is our spiritual liberator and he rode in as a sign of peace. Not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And the people had a hard time understanding this. Look at verse 16, John 12, 16. Flat out, I love this man, flat out. His disciples did not understand these things at first. (laughs) Like, Yo, the crowd is cheering, Hosanna, save us. Here comes the king, blessed in the name of God. And his disciples are like, yeah, okay, there's hype. Okay, yeah, Hosanna. What is this? What are we doing? I don't don't know me. Yeah, Hosanna. Like, yo, we don't, they're there, but they don't get it, at least at first. But when Jesus was glorified, or in other words, when he died and was raised from the dead, they started reflecting and remembering, and they remembered the things that had been written about him and had been done to him. So they eventually got it, but they didn't get it right there. And I just want to say real quick, side note, 
if you're in the room tonight and you oftentimes read the scriptures or you pray or you come and hear sermons and you're like, dude, if I'm really honest, I just don't get a lot of this stuff. I don't get how it connects. I don't get what I'm supposed to do with it. I don't get how I'm supposed to apply it. And if those thoughts leave you feeling like you're disqualified from following Jesus or leave you feeling embarrassed or like you're less than or you're not as like holy or, or anything like that, I just want to encourage you and say, look, the 12 who rolled with Jesus nearly every day of his life in ministry were always confused by what he was doing. I don't know what he's doing. Like, always. And I just want to encourage you and say, it's okay to be confused. That confusion oftentimes leads to curiosity, which then, can, then leads to understanding. It's okay. You don't have to have all the answers. So often I meet with students and they're like, dude, I just don't get this stuff. And I'm like, that's okay. Let's talk about it. So please don't disqualify yourself because you feel like you're not smart enough or you can't connect the dots of how it all, what it all means. That's okay. They were confused. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard that he had done the sign. So there's some people there just to see if he's going to do anything else. There's some people there based on what they've heard about him. And then there's another group, the Pharisees. These are the religious kind of stuck up guys. The Pharisees said to themselves, you see, we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Again, Jesus would be arrested in about five days. They've been planning to murder this man since he began his ministry. They don't like him. So now they're like, oh, see, tens of thousands of people have gone after him. We've lost. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> jealous and bitter and sad. All right, so why, why are these then conditional followers? Like so far, it all seems pretty good. It all seems like, yeah, man, they're praising him. I mean, they may maybe misunderstand what Messiah is, but they're, they're shouting, they're singing. I want us to go very quickly to John chapter 19, verse 14. We're going to look at two verses. Jesus has been arrested. He's been lied about. He's been falsely accused. He's been betrayed by one of his 12. He's been handed over to Rome, the very uh, military the rulers that all these people thought Jesus was about to conquer, now Jesus has been given over to. He's been put in chains. He's been questioned. He's been uh, put in these kind of illegal trials at night by the Jewish leaders, and now he's being brought to Pilate. And Jesus is standing with Pilate, the governor of the area, this Roman governor who has the authority, and he's standing in front of a large crowd that have the Jewish leaders that want to kill him and a ton of other Jewish people who are there. Verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And Pilate, that Roman governor, said to the Jews, Behold, your king, which seems appropriate because five days earlier, five days earlier, tens of thousands were shouting, This is the king! Let's get hyped! Here he comes! And now Pilate says, Behold, your king! And Jesus, at this point in time, would have been beaten and ripped open and bloody and stripped naked and in chains and a crown of thorns placed on him as this mocking king and a purple robe placed on his back as this mocking gesture to mark him as a king. And Pilate would be standing him in front of this large crowd, large crowd of people. Behold your king. And they cried out. Look at verse 15. They cried out. Away with him. Away with him and crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered. So the leaders of the Jewish people answered. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records the chief priests persuaded the crowds with them to answer. So it's not just them answering. It's the crowds. We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Five days earlier, five days earlier, John uses the same word, crowds, to describe the reception that Jesus had as he entered Jerusalem. And they're shouting, yo, this is him, this is Messiah. Here he is, he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to liberate us from our earthly captors and oppressors. This is awesome. He's going to sit on the earthly throne. He's going to rule as a military leader. He's going to be a political leader. 
Here he comes, the Messiah. Ah, finally. They had all these conditions for what Messiah would be and look like. And when Jesus came, he did none of them. He did not come as conquering king. He came as suffering servant. He did not fit into their box of conditions based on how they interpreted what he would do, based on their preferences. He defined himself. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And now that he didn't live up to what they wanted him to do, what do you mean he got arrested by Rome? What are you talking about? This is our king. He's supposed to overthrow Rome. What do you... He got arrested and they beat him? What do you... No, no, no. He was supposed to beat them. What happened to the plan, man? This, this was the guy. This is the one. Everything pointed to him. Now that he's not living into their conditions, what do you want to do with this man? Pilate actually had the authority to set him free right there because on Passover, he allowed one prisoner to go free. What do you want me to do with him? Kill him. Kill your king? We have no king but Caesar. The very ruler that they were hoping Jesus would overthrow, they are now declaring a false allegiance to just so that they murder Jesus. They're angry. They're let down. They tracked with this man all the way up to here. This is the season series finale. Everything was supposed to be right here. Every answer to all their questions. Everything led up to this moment, and they watched the episode unfold, and it was so unsatisfying and so disappointing, they were done with the whole thing. Kill him. How can this be? How can you shout, save us, God who saves? This is the king. Here's your road of palm branches marking your victory. <laughs> this is Messiah. How can you shout that and then five days later say, I'm done with him. Kill him. It's because they had a conditional faith. They were conditional followers. Listen, hear me. If our faith in Jesus is based on our conditions for Jesus, then we are not following Jesus. We are asking him to follow us. If our faith in Jesus is based on our conditions for Jesus, we're not following Jesus. We're asking him to follow us. You're basically saying, Jesus, I have my idea of what you're going to do and who you're going to be and where this is going to go. I have my lens that I look through, and I'm asking you to fit right in that box. And if you do that, if you bless me in this way, and if nothing bad happens to me or my family, and if no one gets sick, and if nothing terrible happens, and if I don't have questions about my faith, and if it all makes sense, and if my dreams unfold the way they should, and if the blueprint for my life is successful, and I go where I want to go, and you bless those things, then I will follow you. You got it. That's not following. That's conditional following. You're defining who Jesus is, and you're telling him, hey, as long as you fit into that, as long as it's how I see it, then I'll follow you. That's manipulation masquerading as followership. It's not following Jesus. It's under the veil of followership in name only. But the moment things get tough, and the moment you're disappointed by him, and the moment he doesn't meet your expectations or your understanding, and the moment you have questions or doubts or fears or disappointments or letdowns, the moment stuff just doesn't make sense anymore, how could he be arrested by Rome? Then it's like, then I'm done. If our faith in Jesus is based on our conditions for Jesus, we're not following Jesus. We're asking him to follow us. But Jesus is so much better than the design we could ever do for our life. He's so much better than the plans we could ever make. He's so much better than the assumptions we could ever create. He's so much better than the conditions that we could ever fabricate. Jesus is the best. He offers the best life and the best hope with the best promises. He does make us right with God again. He repairs the brokenness that happened in Genesis 3. Jesus is truly the king who conquered the great enemy. 
but not an earthly one, a spiritual one. He has liberated us from our captor, but not an earthly one, a spiritual one. He has given us victory, but not an earthly one, a spiritual one. And we have life and victory over sin, and we don't fear death because death is not a reality for the believer in Jesus. He has given us victory as our great king. He is Messiah. So how do you need to respond to Jesus tonight? Have you placed conditions around him? Have you created all these things? You're like, Jesus, as long as you abide in this and do this and check that box and I feel this way, then I'll follow you. Have you created the checklist for Jesus? Have you claimed to follow him and yet really what you're doing is inviting him to follow your plans? And if that's you tonight, I would invite you to take a risk and go out on a limb and, and muster the courage and allow Jesus to reveal his true self to you and experience, maybe for the first time, how good he actually is when you allow him to define him and you have no conditions for what that means. I think you'll find a much more satisfying and rewarding life. Jesus said the best life, John 10, 10, 10 an abundant life in him. How do you need to respond to Jesus tonight? Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you and we love you, and man, we're stirred up from your word. Jesus, sometimes it's hard, and sometimes just like the disciples, we, we, we try to live this life, and we're just so confused with what you're doing. What was that? Why did he ride a donkey? We don't know how to make sense of some things. Why did he let me suffer? Why did he allow that to happen to my family? This isn't what I thought he would be. And those things can tempt us to despair to the point where we're just done. And I pray tonight that we would cling to you desperately, not because of the circumstances of our life and not because of the conditions that we expect from you. I pray that we would cling to you, Jesus, because we would understand you are our only hope in this life and the next. And we may not get it all and we may not see the full picture and life will be hard and we will have doubts and we will suffer, but that doesn't discredit you as good and it doesn't discredit you as God and you are on the throne and you have defeated the enemy and I pray that we would fall on you tonight and claim you as the king of our hearts with no conditions, just faith and reception of you. Jesus, we ask these things in your name by the power of your spirit. Amen.